Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have the New King James Version, that's okay, but I've put a little card in the bulletin for some scripture that we're going to read together. And so if you don't have a New King James as we read together in just a minute, you might want to get that card out of the bulletin so we can all read uh, the same uh, translation of the scripture as we read it together. Uh, The first time I left uh, the driveway after the snow came a couple of weeks ago, I saw something that I hoped was not what I thought it was. Right under the middle of my car, there was bright red on the snow. And I thought, well, you know, I remember a dead animal down at, right on the, right where you drive into the church, there was a dead squirrel. Somebody got that old black squirrel that lives up in our attic right out there. I thought maybe he got stuck under there and maybe some of that dripped down on there. You know, that's, that's what you call a hopeful imagination. When you've just bought a car that's only a couple of years old, you don't want to see it bleeding on the snow. Okay, so I took it back to the fellow that I I got it from. We put it up on the lift, and sure enough, it was bleeding transmission fluid right there. And of course, it was like a month after the guarantee expired. (laughs) Oh, man. You kind of hope when you're making a payment on a car, you don't have to do maintenance on the car, you know. So I called this repair. My friend said, look, this place over here specializes in American cars. Call them. And uh, my friend specializes in different kind of cars. And, and uh, so I called them, and we talked about it. And I told him, this car and this miles and so on, these problems. And he said, well, that's under guarantee. And, and I could tell he was kind of writing something. He was being quiet on the phone. He says, I did it on paper. I figured it out. It has to be under guarantee. And... Uh, so I called up the Dodge dealership. I said, look, I got this car and this mile and this problem. And they go, yeah, bring it on in right now. I said, yes, it was covered. I had gotten something in the mail that made me think the guarantee had expired. I thought I was unprotected, but I was fully covered. As we begin a new year of living for the Lord, I want you to walk confidently knowing that you are fully protected in Christ. God has made provision for your spiritual protection through a wardrobe of spiritual armor that we read about in Ephesians 6. We're going to read together Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 18. Again, it's on the little card in the bulletin or if you've got the New King James, you can read right from your Bible. Here we go at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness 
and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That's the passage of Scripture that we're going to study for the four weeks of January. I want to encourage you to memorize it. That's why I put that card in the bulletin. There's two cards in each bulletin. If there's not enough to go around in your family, get some more bulletins or we'll print some more cards. I want to encourage you to memorize this. And, and by memorizing it, not to come back and say, Pastor Dave, I memorized it, but to come back saying, I am thinking about this passage of Scripture day by day. I am meditating on it. Well, the first thing that we understand in this passage of Scripture is this. Who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the darkness, the rulers of the darkness of this age. The word devil is used 35 times in the Bible to speak of a created angel who was originally called Lucifer, the bright and shining one. Lucifer was an angel of God, created as are all the other angels. Lucifer was not a god who was self-existence in opposition to Jehovah. He was a creation of Jehovah. He served Jehovah. He was, according to the Old Testament and our best understanding, an angel that is categorized as a cherub. And a cherub is not a red-cheeked little child. A cherub is a designation of angel that serves and protects God around God's throne. But his heart became proud and he desired to take God's place. Literally, he desired to sit on God's throne. The eternal, infinite, all-powerful creator of the universe was in no way inclined to surrender his throne to his created being. So he pronounced judgment on Lucifer, who then became known primarily by the name adversary. He became the adversary of God, and by extension, the adversary of all who follow God. The word adversary in Aramaic and Greek is the word Satan. And the word Satan is used 52 times in Scripture. He is also called the ruler of demons. He's called the ruler of this world. He's called the God of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called that great dragon. He's called a roaring lion, a vile one, the tempter, and the devil, which means literally slanderer. When you see the word devil used in scripture, you'll see the word the attached to it. The slanderer. The slanderer would literally be how it would be rendered. And that's where we pick up the word devil as a name for him. 
But verse 12 tells me that Satan is not my only enemy. Look at verse 12 again, please. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against human beings, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. That's literally how it reads. Spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. When, when God uses the word heaven or heavens in the Bible, it means everything from the air on up. When we think of heaven, our mind always goes to the presence of God. But when God uses the word heaven or heavens, he's referring to anything above the earth. In God's parlance, there are three heavens. There is our atmosphere, there is the universe, and then there is the very presence of God. We are wrestling against this wickedness in the heavenly places. Clearly, this is talking about what we would call supernatural beings, not other gods. Please take that word away from Satan and the demons. They are not other gods. They are created beings who are powerful. Revelation 12 suggests that one-third of the angels that God created rebelled with Satan and became what we most often call demons. In Ephesians 6, they're referred to in groups by the realms of authority they possess. The words principalities, powers, rulers, all have the, the connotation of levels of authority. John MacArthur says this in his commentary, Satan's forces of darkness are highly organized and structured for the most destructive warfare possible. Paul's purpose, however, is not to explain the details of the demonic hierarchy, but to give us some idea of its sophistication and power. We are pitted against an incredibly evil and potent enemy, but our need is not to specifically recognize every feature of our adversary, but to turn to God, who is our powerful and trustworthy source of protection and victory. Christian, the first lesson we need to recognize from this vital passage of Scripture is this. You do not see your real enemy. You do not see your real enemy. Now, do are there people in this world who are agitating for Satan? They are agitants for him, if we would use a military term. Are there people in this world who carry out his ideas and his will? Absolutely. But the Apostle Paul just said here, did you get it? We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. The real battle is spiritual. The real battle is spiritual. Why is this so important? It's important because if you use human tactics against a spiritual enemy, you will fail. Let me give you some examples. Many people through the centuries have conceived of the environment for spirituality to be one of separation from the world. They come up with ideas that say, you know what, if I could just get away from this wicked world, then I will be spiritual. I will be righteous because I will remove all of the evil influence. God says, look, you're not fighting against flesh and blood. You're fighting against a supernatural spiritual enemy. Do you think he doesn't see you in the dark? When you're alone and, and you're closed in with cement walls to keep the world out? 
If we just stay away from those wicked people, we won't be tempted. If we just get rid of our TV and put filtering controls on our computer, then we won't covet or envy or lust anymore. If we just get our kids out of the public schools and send them to Christian colleges when they graduate, then they won't be sinful. If we just come to church every night of the week, if we could just work hard to keep the ungodly people out of the church, then we would be so righteous. If I could just get out of this evil workplace and work from my home, then I would be victorious. Now, there's merit in all of those things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all those things are foolish. But if, in our attempt to remove sinful influences, we forget that the real enemy is spiritual, and he will find devious ways to get to us no matter what the the case, if we forget that, we will fail. The problem isn't just the people and the behavioral norms of our society. The real enemy is a wicked, powerful spirit being who leads a wicked horde of spirit beings who are set on your spiritual destruction. Not only do we know who our enemy is, we know what his tactics are. And and this is something that, that really... opened up to me, I hope it opens up to you, but I guess just the thought that I read here, it says, you're going to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Other scripture tells me this, we we know what his tools are. And I'll be honest with you, over the years I've thought, well, we don't know exactly how Satan works. And I got to thinking about it, thinking about the scriptural examples, and, and the truth of scripture is we know exactly how he works. Because God gives it to us both by example and by principle. The, the word that's used here about his tactics, look at the word, in your New King James it's the word wiles, or in the King James it's also wiles. Uh, I'm not sure what it is in the NIV there. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the... And the word literally is this, methods. It's where we get our word methods from. In Greek it's methodius. Okay, it's method. The word while is an old English word, and those of you that are cartoon watchers will recognize the word while in the name of wily coyote. And it means to be devious. But this word doesn't mean devious or wicked in and of itself, it just means methods. The devil has methodology. Everything Satan does is sinful and wicked, but this word here is just telling us, look, he's thought through. He has given effort to figuring out what's going to work when he comes to oppose you. There is a methodology to the devil. He attacks humanity based on what he knows to cause us to let go of our stand for the Lord. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. We are not ignorant of his devices. The NIV uses the word schemes. This is a reference to the wicked things that Satan does. And it literally, though, means, this word device here, it literally means his thoughts. We are not ignorant of the thoughts of the devil. We know how he thinks. The devil tempts you thoughtfully. He has methodology. He thinks about it. He studies humanity. 
He's not all-knowing like God. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know everything that's going on in your mind, but he knows how humanity goes. He says, you know what? If I do this, they'll do that. And so he has methods. He has thoughts. Now, when the Apostle Paul, think about this. When the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he did not have the whole New Testament. But you know what he had? He had the Old Testament. And right from the beginning, we learn about Satan's methods. What are they? First one that we learn about, the very first one in the Scripture is this. Satan contradicts God's Word. Now, the serpent, that was a real physical being that Satan possessed and came and talked to Eve. Apparently, it was not odd in Eve's existence to talk to animals. I understand that's different today. That doesn't mean it wasn't so then. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? See, now right there is where he contradicts and corrupts the word of God. God did not say, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. He said what? You shall not eat from that tree. But right away, he starts corrupting. And the woman said, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Now Eve corrupts the scripture. God never said anything about touching the tree. First Satan corrupts it, then Eve corrupts it. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. Is that a contradiction? Is that 180 degrees? It is. God says, do this and you'll die. Satan says, you won't die. Does Satan contradict the scripture today in our society? A family is a group of people who love each other. Period. That's what our society says. What does God say? It says that marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. Period. The serpent said, you will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here he just flat makes it up. He makes it up, but it sounds so good. Satan contradicts God's word. That is his primary tool. I would, I would understand that to be his primary tool because he starts right off in the garden with it. And of course he moves right on to the tool of pride. We'll come to that one later on. But he says, Eve, Eve, you're going to be like God. And Eve goes, "Ah, yeah. Because it says, when she saw that the tree was good to make one wise, she said, yeah, I'm going to be just like God. Satan contradicts God's word. When you are tempted to look for truth in your life, Outside the Bible, you are being tempted by Satan. Now, please understand, Christian, do I think you're being tempted by Satan personally? Absolutely not. Uh, Satan can only be in one place at one time. So how many million Christians are there in the world? I don't know. But it's expanding every day. Okay, So I don't think Satan is personally tempting you. So when I say that, 
you're being tempted by Satan. I'm talking about Satan and his demons and the world that they influence, the whole pressure point. But what Ephesians 6 is telling us is, even if you feel the pressure, for instance, of contradiction of God's word from a human being, the original source is Satan. And so God's going to tell us how to defeat that original source as we face the mediating source. When you are tempted to look for truth for your life outside the Bible, you are being tempted by Satan. When you reject the simple truth of God in his word, and you pursue a so-called deeper, quote-unquote, more complex idea, which in fact contradicts the scripture, you have been won over by Satan. When you ignore the truth of God and live by your own moral code, you are living in Satan's kingdom. Surely nobody gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to play on Satan's team. But when you contradict God's word, when you follow a contradiction in God's word, you are in fact playing on Satan's team. As we will see later, you have ceased to resist and you have given in. And he has won the battle. Satan's first method is contradicting God's word. This is God's divine commentary on Eve. I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. We're talking about some, a friend of ours recently who, who isn't a great intellect but when they talk to people, they just talk simply and straightforward to them based on the scripture. And we're talking about that, and, and the people around us said, that's it. It is simple. There is sin. There is righteousness. There are evil thoughts and good thoughts, evil deeds and bad deeds. There is a Savior. I am a sinner. It's a simple truth. And when Satan comes along and corrupts it by complexing it, you've fallen under the... Temptation of Satan. Satan contradicts God's word. Secondly, Satan obscures God's goodness. And of course, I could have put the word tries to in here. He can't make these things happen, but he puts these things out. And from Job, we learn the, the supreme lesson about how Satan tries to obscure God's goodness. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. This was a truly godly man way back in the far distant Old Testament time. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him, and also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. He was really rich. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be, it may just be that one of my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So Job worshipped for them. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. It's speaking to the angels. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Does God need to ask? Does God need to ask? No. Did God need to ask Adam where he was in the garden? Where have you come from? Satan said, well, I've been going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Now that's one of those times when you want God to just pass you right over, isn't it? (laughs) Hey, Satan, did you notice Job? (laughs) If Job had known that was going on, he would have run for cover. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing, or is there there no good reason for this? Have you not made a hedge, a fence around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And so God says, give it a shot. And it unfolds from there. And eventually Job is reduced to having boils all over his body. His kids have been killed in calamitous accidents. His possessions are gone. He has a wife who is urging him to curse God. And he has three friends that we call call Job's comforters who don't bring him any comfort because they keep saying, surely something's wrong in your life, Job. Surely you've messed up, Job. Otherwise, this wouldn't have happened. Now, what's the big lesson here, class? Satan wanted Job to look up in heaven and go, you are a lousy God. You're not good. You're wicked. You took all this away. It would have been better if you never gave it to me. That's what Satan wanted to happen. But what did happen? Job hung in there. And Job didn't know anything about this. We get the blessing of seeing what was going on. We see the whole story. Poor old Job, just he's getting up every morning going, man, did I do something wrong? I don't think I did. I think I've been following God. And his friends came and said, surely you've done something wrong. He said, no, I don't think I have. Satan wants you to doubt the goodness of God, and the way he will come at you is by bringing calamity and hardship and difficulty to your life. He wants you to see your car bleed and for you to go, come on, God, I prayed for this car. You know I can't afford to fix a transmission on the darn thing. And of course he does worse, doesn't he? He'll bring all kinds of calamity. I don't know if every physical calamity that comes to my life or your life comes from Satan. I don't believe they do. But I know that Satan will use calamity and he will use the opinions of people about difficulty to get you to doubt the goodness of God. And we have to resist that. Number three, Satan short-circuits God's plans. Now again, I would insert the word tries. Satan tries to get you to short-circuit God's plan. And we learn this from the temptation of Christ. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the devil went to a new temptation. The devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Did you catch that even in this passage? Satan said, look, you could throw yourself down off this temple because the angels are going to come take care of you. And Jesus said, don't tempt God. And when all of these temptations from the devil were over, what happened? The angels came and ministered to him. You see, God has things in mind for your life that sometimes take time to get to. And Satan comes along and says, hey, Dave, here's a short path to that thing. Run over there and grab a hold to it. And the short path is always, almost always, almost always a sinful path. Sometimes it's not sinful expressly, but it becomes sinful because we're not trusting God. Does God promise to take care of the needs of believers? Does God promise to take care of the needs of believers? Matthew 6, all the, your father knows you need these things. But Satan will come along and say, focus your life on getting the stuff of life. And when you do that, you've fallen under the short circuit. Satan wants you to skip God in the process and just run over here and grab it. God wants us to have our our friendship, companionship needs met. But there are righteous ways to meet that and unrighteous ways. Satan wants you to take a short path to get those needs met. God says, look, trust in me. Satan will tempt you to short circuit good things in your life. There's much talk today about health and wealth being signs of God's blessing on a righteous person. But the truth is that Job was so righteous... He was so righteous that he was personally attacked by the devil. You may be so righteous that you come under difficulties and calamities. Satan may tempt you. And he may come along and say, Oh, here's the short path to get there. Does God intend to meet your needs? Yes, but not on a sinful path. Number four, Satan embezzles God's position. Maybe even better, Satan will tempt you to embezzle God's position. What do I mean by that? Well, the word embezzle means to take by fraudulent means something that has been entrusted to you by another person. We typically use this word of uh, the treasurer in a business who takes the money that belongs to the owner. We've had some interesting cases of that right here in Ferndale, treasurer of the PTA embezzled a large sum of money, and so on. It means to take something that you've been entrusted with. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did any of them, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses, sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man, but, but, in contrast, but a certain man named Ananias... With Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. 
And he kept back part of the proceeds. And his wife also, being aware of it, and they brought a certain part, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard those things. If if you're not familiar with this story, what happened was, Ananias and his wife said, "Did, Did you see? Did you see how they congratulated Barnabas and how they said good job when he gave all of that money from that sale of land? Man, I want some of that. And he said, we sold this property for $10,000. Here's $10,000. And the apostle looked at him and he said, why are you lying to God? Because he'd really sold the land for $20,000 or some other figure. And he only gave part, but he told them it was the whole. Why do you do that? If we see the connection between chapter 4 and chapter 5 in this story, if we look at the whole thing, and if we understand that he was motivated by Satan, and if he had the choice to do whatever he wanted with his possession and with the sale proceeds, we understand that he was looking for some, some attaboy, some pride, some status in the body of Christ. Who deserves glory from your good deeds? Who? Who gave Ananias that piece of property? And so when he sold it, he could have come and said, here's God's money, I'm, I'm giving it back to him. He, you know, and, and if people had patted him on the back, he could have said, hey, it was God's to begin with. Thank the Lord. He could have given glory to God, but he wanted the glory. It is the original sin. Satan said, I will sit on the throne of the Most High. And so when you are tempted to take glory for yourself, when you are tempted to be upset because you don't get enough glory, you are being tempted by Satan. If you do something so people will notice you, you are embezzling God's glory. And there's nothing that rejoices the heart of Satan more than that. Fifthly, Satan coerces God's people. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Would you read that again in your mind? The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I don't think us Christians take good enough note of the fact that Satan runs the world. I don't know exactly how he accomplishes it all, but God says that he does it. Satan is an instigator of all of the wicked things in the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of, excuse me, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. The stuff that is appealing to our human nature, the stuff we have to have, the stuff we crave, is put there by Satan. When Eve was tempted, Satan was the world system. 
Now he works through people all around us to press us toward his way of thinking and living. The norms of our society appeal to our flesh. The norms of our society appeal to our flesh and we crave and desire and covet people and possessions and positions and more. Our human nature is pressed by Satan just as Eve's was. Satan has carefully thought out what kinds of temptations will get to you as a human being. I don't think he has to tempt you personally so much just as a human being. But we need to understand one more thing today, and that is, what is Satan's goal? What is Satan's goal? And this may be a strange way to think of it, but look at verse 13. Therefore, because of all of this wickedness in the heavenlies, because Satan is our enemy, therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And he uses this word stand several times. And the word stand is it was a military term from the time of Christ that meant to hold your ground. Here, there's an image that I think has been, uh, what's the word? Maligned, mispresented by the popular Christian TV shows and so on. And that is this, that we are supposed to conquer the devil and take ground from him. There's no emphasis in the scripture on that. The scripture says the normal Christian life is this. When I get up in the morning, I say, how should I live for Christ today? What do I need to do today? What are the sins I need to lay aside today? What are the righteousnesses I need to pick up today? How do I need to trust God today? And I set about living for Christ. Now what happens when I set about living for Christ? The devil, through the world, through his demons, through people in the world, pushes back. And the goal is to get us to retreat. To retreat. When you say, I'm going to be kind to my neighbor who is mean to me, Satan will push back and try to make you think, oh, you know, I think that neighbor's too mean. I think I'm going to give up on that. Satan wants you to retreat from the godliness that you have come to in your life. The Christian life is characterized by moving forward in Christ, both personally and corporately as a church. And then not moving backward when Satan comes to push. Satan is not omnipresent, but he seems to take notice of forward motion. There's a little book called The Screwtape Letters written by C.S. Lewis. I'm sure we have a copy in church library. I've got a copy. I'd be glad to loan it to you. It is a a fiction of C.S. Lewis uh, with a senior demon writing to a junior demon teaching him how to tempt people. And looking for people that are doing things. 
As Satan would look at all of the Christians in the world, the ones who are already in retreat, he doesn't need to spend any time on them. But if you start moving forward, if we start moving forward as a church, I suppose Satan is going to give us some difficulty. Somehow, some way. Satan's goal is to get you to retreat from your present level of maturity. Satan wants this church to retreat from the progress we've made in making disciples and caring for people and everything. He wants us to retreat. He wants us to look at the economic difficulties in our society and say, ooh, we better retreat, we better hold back, we better pull in, we better not try to do anything too much. He wants to use everything at his disposal to discourage us. He wants us to look at the challenge of accommodating more people in the building and in the parking lot and say things like, I was here first, they can just park wherever they want. Rather than saying, wait a minute, what would Christ have me to do? And I don't care how hard it is to come. He doesn't want us to keep on laying down our lives in service to one another. He wants us to retreat from a position from a position of loving others to a position of self-love. Spiritual warfare for the Christian is a defensive maneuver. We move ahead in Christ, then we stand our ground when Satan comes to attack us. When I think of this, I think of football. Uh, you know, I never played football. I was too small. My parents were afraid I'd get hurt. Um, <laughs> I was almost this big in ninth grade, you know. But in football, there's two groups of guys trying to occupy the same piece of dirt. And, and these guys are trying to go that way, and these guys are trying to go that way, and they all get down nose to nose. They line up, and one guy says, go, and some guys try to move forward, and the other guys try to stop them. That's you and Satan. Jesus Christ says, move forward. And Satan goes, ah. He'll do it through all those methods we talked about. And the question you have to ask yourself today is not, can I conquer Satan? The question is, can I just stand still in Christ and not give up? Can I hold my ground in Christ? As we study the rest of this passage, we're going to understand that God has given us all the armor we need. These fellows are covered with armor. If you've never seen a football player get ready for a game, you ain't seen nothing. Because it is hideous and weird. All this stuff. And they still get hurt. Good news, Christian. God's got a whole suit of armor for you. And you can be victorious. It's not about whether you're something. It's about whether Christ is something. But you've got to be in Christ. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ as your Savior, you're under the devil's rule in the world. And you'll never be able to stand up against him. Never. But the good news is you can come to faith in Christ. You can understand that Christ died on the cross for your sins. You can take him into your life. You can be a new person in Christ. If you're a Christian here today, let me challenge you. As I said earlier, take that card or make your own. If you want to you know, use it, the NIV or some other translation, great. Lord bless you. Make your own card. But keep that card with you for the next four weeks. 
and memorize it a little bit at a time. Challenge each other in your family, whatever you can do. Read the thing. Read it, read it, read it, and ask God to help you commit it to memory. Don't go out of here saying, I can't memorize anything. That's not true. You know your phone number. You know your social security number. You know your shoe size. You can memorize this. But here's the deal. When it comes to power, this is it. When it comes to being protected against the devil, this is it. This is going to be the summary of what we're going to learn. So start getting it in your heart right now. Heavenly Father, bless us. Protect us as we study your word. I don't know if Satan takes particular note of when we study him and his tactics and your defensive armor, but it wouldn't surprise me. And so I ask that as we go out of here today, you will help us to stand, to not give ground back, not to retreat. Help us to memorize your word. Help us to live by your word. Help us to know your victory in new ways in 2009. I pray in Christ's name, amen.